Hello, I'm Laura Scales, a dedicated arts facilitator, career counselor, and the CEO of Living Arts Detroit. Join us as we chat with both experienced and emerging artistic professionals who have ignited their creativity and shaped their careers to thrive while living in the arts. Today's interview is with a decade-long friend of mine, MC Stefan. MC is a director, writer, and instructor whose expertise in the personal essay has led to a varied career. We're going to learn more about solo performance, the college essay, curiosity, and self-employment. One takeaway I can offer you already? Find the question that your story can answer. For more, stay tuned. Hi, MC. Hi, Laura. How are you? Oh my gosh, I'm happy to see you. Um, I'm, I'm good. Happy to see you. I, is this a this is a great opportunity for us to catch up and to have you on the Living in the Arts podcast. I'm going to let you introduce yourself before we launch into today's conversation. Um, well, hi. I am MC Stefan. I am a storyteller and storytelling writing teacher, uh, which I've come recently to understand is just another form of storytelling. I got started as a theater student at the University of Chicago, where Laura taught. From there, I discovered my uh, my love of telling stories in theatrical settings. Those are the skills that, uh, that I've used as a writing teacher for uh, a company that I co-founded with to other uh, U Chicago theater alums called Chromolo Writing, uh, where we we teach high schoolers how to write personal statements, which is really a, a backdoor way of uh, teaching high schoolers that they are also storytellers. As I love to start every conversation off, I want to do a good thing and a bad thing. You can have two good things, but you can't have two bad things. Those are the rules that I made up. Um, and I'll go ahead and start. Um, one, I get to talk to you, and that's incredible. And I'm super excited to do so and hear more about what you're doing and and where your path has led. And I have power. We we lost power in a big old storm in Detroit. And so we were out without power, but then we got power back. So I'm hoping that the the rest of the city gets gets their power back. How about you? Uh, so good thing, best thing uh, from from my week is that my uh, girlfriend who has been away in uh, uh, England and uh, other parts of Europe over the summer as part of her grad program just returned to Chicago. Uh, so we've been uh, catching up and enjoying each other's company over the last couple of days. Second best good thing is that I'm doing this podcast and get to catch up with Laura. All right. Tell me a little bit more about how you got into the arts and your path to where you are now. Uh, do you want the long version or the short version? Long, always. Okay. Uh, so the the long version, I, I've always just innately enjoyed entertaining people with, with stories. Uh, I, I get that from, uh, I mean, mostly from my dad, who's a, a big joke teller, storyteller. And uh, I was always one of those... One of those like precocious little kids who who knows how to be uh, like funny in not just like a cute way, but also kind of a preternaturally creepy way. I, I think I really got into the arts in the sense of like thinking about it as a craft that I wanted to discover and in practice as a reaction to fundamentalism. Uh, so I, I was raised in a, 
a very hard right conservative evangelical Southern Baptist church and community. And I remember the the couple of years after uh, leaving the faith when I was a teenager, just kind of grasping around desperately for, you know, what is my identity, which all teenagers do. But I was doing that in reaction to leaving a, a tradition that didn't have a high tolerance for nuance, a tradition that was very anti-human in a lot of ways, I think. I, I ended up falling into a really fervent passion for, for literature, uh, for, for movies, for the power of stories to help us uh, make sense of things. From there, it was a, a pretty steady track toward seeing the arts as something that I do because it brings me joy, not as something that I do because it makes me feel smart or accomplished or any such thing, but it makes you happy. Yep. And it makes other people happy to watch your work um, and to work with you. Some of my fondest memories are from working with you on shows and just watching you grow as an artist and a writer and reading a bunch of drafts of, of shows and different things that you have going on in my heart. Thank you. So makes me happy. Some of my fondest memories of my time at U Chicago are of sitting in your office and talking about a show I was working on or talking about how your career was going. And I'm really happy to hear that. I wanted to ask you, when did you know you were going to be in this industry for the long haul? In, uh, in college, when I, when I discovered that I really loved doing theater, I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to be in the theater industry for the long haul. And then uh, my life ended up taking a different path from that. And the, the theater industry uh, ended up taking a path that's now flirting very closely with obsolescence. When did I realize that I was in the arts industry for a long haul? I think I think that it was not immediately after I I first got my my main job teaching writing. Uh but it was shortly after that. So after I left college for the second time very long story short for listeners who don't know me my undergrad career was basically a perpetual revolving door treadmill machine of dropping out and dropping in and dropping out and dropping back in i think the second time dropping out i had no degree no real marketable skills outside of you know being able to make theater and theater is a hard industry to break into even with sterling letters of rec and sterling grades and uh, a lot of industry connections, none of which I had. I ended up earning a living for a couple of years as a human guinea pig, taking uh, experimental pharmaceuticals being developed by drug companies. Shortly after, after my second time kind of dropping out, a friend of mine, Josh, who had been working with high schoolers on college application essays for a while, connected me with friends of, of friends of some of his clients and started giving me work that way. At the time, I didn't think that that was work in the arts industry. I, I kind of had this, this division in mind between teaching art and doing art. 
But over the years, since I, I've been doing this work more and more, since I've realized this is actually work that I'm good at and that is actually can really benefit the the kids that I'm working with in more ways than just helping them get into college. And especially since Josh and our other teacher, Shelly, and I actually incorporated, I've been realizing that, no, this is there is an art to teaching. And especially there is there's a lot of creative fulfillment in teaching others how to make their art. That's incredible. Okay. How has your work as a director and a solo performer kind of helped inform um, the way you train for college admissions, essay writing, and instruct the students? Oh, that's a really good question, Claire and Laura. Mm -hmm. So I got started in theater at uh, the University of Chicago as an actor for kind of two productions, but after... After, you know, about two years of auditioning for, for many, many shows and not being cast. And this was a, a, a big switch up for me because uh, I was used to leading roles from theater in high school. A, I kind of realized I have a very particular range as, as a performer. I have a very particular stage presence. I realized that the thing that I really love about making theater isn't so much performing the role as it is making the story happen in front of an audience. And that kind of led me to think, uh, maybe I want to try directing. The wonderful and kind of insane thing about uh, the University of Chicago's undergrad theater program is that if you if you play your cards right as a 19, 20, 21 year old, you can get a couple thousand dollar budget to do pretty much what you want with and wreak havoc in in any ways that you can dream up. And we we wrought so much havoc uh, with the shows that we did. It was a real trial by fire, uh, learning by doing experience, where all of these images of, you know, what a director does uh, that I had in my head got completely shattered. I think it's very natural for a lot of people to assume, you know, the director makes everything happen. The director plans out every single thing and, you know, do this, do, do that. The big realization that I that I had directing plays in college was that the director doesn't have the the power to actually make anything happen on the stage. You're not saying the lines. You are empowering your actors to say the lines in in the way that fits not just your vision, but also ideally theirs as well, or the one that they've helped form. If you can't inspire uh, the people that you're working with, your designers, your actors, your managers, your your builders, every everything to build it and make it theirs, then whatever you think of as yours doesn't end up out in the world. Mm. Um, so I think that that was the director portion of it. As a writing teacher, I am directing my my students in a sort of way. Both of them are are positions of leadership, and the the real lesson that I carry from that is that. The job of a leader is to be the servant of the people that they're leading. 100%. Okay, I am going to go into a different question. MC, you're one of the most skilled question askers that I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. How do you find your skill in active listening to inform your artistic practice? Oh, well, thank you. I think that good stories only exist and can only come about from asking good questions. When I sit down with a student to start 
brainstorming ideas for their personal statements. I always begin with asking them questions about whatever it is they want to write about. And almost always it's, it's something that they would actually have fun writing, something that they would enjoy writing about, even if it weren't an assignment. But for whatever reason, they feel like they don't have permission to write about it. Oh, I can't write about my culture and heritage because that's a cliche. I can't write about my extracurricular that I love doing because I don't have an impressive accomplishment in it. And in almost always, a they're they're wrong because I think a lot of us really devalue how impressive our accomplishments are. B, really part of the the challenge is uh, is anticipating the questions about whatever the their story is that the reader would actually really want to know the answer to. I I try to ask questions that I know just from my my training as a writer and editor uh, lead to good stories, right? Questions about change. If they want to write about a skill that they have, a thing that they love doing. Do you remember a time when you weren't good at this skill? Uh, what are some of the moments where you where you leveled up in this or where you learned something in, important about what you're doing? Questions about uh, origin, questions about contrast or, or conflict. A lot of what I try to do with the questions that I ask is to uh, is to lead them to realizing that there can be really interesting contrasts and conflicts in their in their stories that are not violent or or, or typical uh, when we when we think of conflict. Really, just kind of taking two seemingly really divergent or different things in their lives that you would think don't have anything to do with each other. Uh, you know, because of this kid's unique perspective on the world, you know, you might think that woodworking and Neopets are just two totally different things that have nothing in common, but actually uh, they both involve this same way of looking at the world. Trying trying to find things like that that are both unique and, and really interesting because I've never heard anything like that before. Uh, but when you dig deep enough under the surface and you get to to the solution to the puzzle that their life forms something really universal and relatable. I'm in love with that idea. If I can actually jump back to uh, a thread that, that we set up and abandoned a lot of that, I think comes from the trial by fire of writing and performing my own stories from my life. The first solo show that I did uh, was actually at U Chicago. It was part of my BA thesis where the requirement was just an original work of theater in some uh, in some regard. I I had been hoping to write uh, the story about leaving the fundamentalist faith for a while. It seemed to me like the real obstacle to to writing that story was was my feeling that this wasn't interesting or somehow wouldn't be relatable to people who who weren't raised or connected to American evangelical church. And a lot of what kind of sustained me and really drove my creative choices in that process was realizing, oh, no, these are these are questions that everyone can relate to, even if they're approaching them from very different places. Right. Like what what is our purpose in, in life? How do we connect and how do we interact with people who make very different assumptions about faith in, in the world than than we do? So the the first thing that I needed to do was realize, oh, the story is worth telling and people will want to hear it even if they're not me. But then the the second layer was realizing, okay, but to to make this monologue 
about reading Kierkegaard when I was 14 and comparing it against the doctrine that I that I was raised in to make that interesting and to make that something that uh, that people can actually grasp. I do need to set this up. I do need to clarify this thing. Uh, I do need to answer these questions. And that's really the the ethos of the work that I do with my students, right? Figuring out, okay, you feel drawn to write this for whatever reason. We can safely assume that there is something in that story that's worth telling that other people will want to hear if you really want to write it. So we just need to dig out what is driving you to write it and what information do your readers need that they may not have right away to understand that impulse and to enjoy hearing it as well. That's incredible advice. I I love it. And you answered so many questions in that question. Oh, no. no, it's great. It's perfect. It gives us more time. I really loved when you um, said that you had to realize that it was a story worth telling and kind of valuing um, your art and your voice and your intelligence and your experience. Um, I think that that's definitely something that a lot of people grapple with. And, you know, I think we can all see the like people with huge, you know, vibrato going around who are like, I am great. Ah, tell mm-hmm. me more. I'm going to tell you everything about myself. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there are some really incredible moments of um, people overlooking themselves and mm-hmm. people counting themselves out before they've had a chance to uh, even jump in. But in speaking of your uh, solo performance piece for your BA, those were the happy rocks. Yeah. Yes. Um, I I don't think I actually have any of them here with me, uh, but I'll, I'll just have to tell the story without a visual aid, which That's great. I guess it's, fine it's a podcast in audio medium. Yes. So my dad, who was my my Sunday school teacher when I was growing up, uh, was also sometimes a lay preacher in our, our church. In addition to really loving Jesus and, and the Bible and, and his faith, he really loves taking rocks from the shores of Clearwater Beach uh, where uh, in Florida, where, where I grew up, the, those kind of like really smooth, round, uh, oval-shaped stones. And he'll draw smiley faces on them with black and red magic markers, you know, two quick circles for the eyes, little circles uh, filled in there for pupils, big outline of a mouth, and then fill that in with with the the red sharpie uh, for a, a big happy face. He passes these happy rocks out to pretty much anyone that that he meets, people on the street, people in our church, servers and restaurants, cashiers, everyone who spends any any time in my dad's orbit gets one of these happy rocks uh and i grew up with these rocks just filling our our house you know surrounding me especially the the ones on which he sometimes wrote a message on the back that said smile jesus loves you so i i forget where this idea came from but uh in the the first solo show that i did it was decided i forget if it was by me or my director, Josh, who uh, I've mentioned before, but it was decided that I would have a giant bag of happy rocks that I would 
carry around as a kind of durational physical performance challenge uh, throughout the show and that I would distribute them to the audience. And as I tell the story about uh, my relationship with my dad and the way that it kind of morphed and become more complicated since I went from uncritically accepting uh, everything about the nature of God and, and salvation and hell and everything that he taught me and how our relationship became more fraught as I began questioning and ultimately leaving the faith. Uh, I would keep coming back to rocks as uh, as a metaphor, the the happy rocks, God as the, the rock on which we build our lives, the great stone that uh, Sisyphus carries in his uh, punishment from the gods and uh, how Albert Camus says that that's uh, a metaphor for uh, you know the burden that we carry of our search for meaning and the the rock metaphors just kind of kept stacking and in stacking from there but ultimately it was really important to me that that they be happy rocks uh that they be rocks that pose a burden and like no no matter how many smiley faces are on them it it's really hard to carry a, a giant bag filled with rocks uh and i think a couple of years ago as i was thinking do i ever want to take this show on tour that that's going to be the big obstacle. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I am not good at thinking about the logistics and the, the difficulties posed by the creative choices that I make, as you know, as the <laughs> production manager of, of University Theater for several of the shows that I directed. Uh, but ultimately, like, they are rocks with smiles on their faces. And while all of the, the art that I do grapples with pain of some kind, I, I do want it ultimately to put a smile on people's faces, as my dad will say when he hands you one of his rocks. I have one of your rocks, or more specifically, Dax has one of your rocks. Um, so we have the happy rock, but he like adopted it very early. Like he was less than a year old and he was like, this is mine, but it still sits oh, on wow. his desk. It went to uh, show and tell at kindergarten. The happy rock lives around with him okay i have another question for you okay uh what piece what is the piece that you've created uh that you're most or least proud of and what did you learn from it one of the big realizations that i've had about myself in the past uh, couple of years has been that um i am always dissatisfied in big and small ways with everything that i create a lot of creatives resonate with this. A lot of creatives who struggle with perfectionism uh, especially resonate with this. It's extremely easy to hyperfixate on the little tiny moments that don't actually matter about how like, oh, if, if only I'd gotten that exactly right. I'll, I'll talk about a, a storytelling class that I, that I took at the beginning of this year where the form that we were using was extemporaneous uh, storytelling. So... We would sit in our you know, respective rooms and record a story in one take into your camera or your phone microphone and upload. And I just had a, a really difficult time doing that because I, I didn't have the, uh, the ability to like script the story and, and think about it and polish it. I also didn't have an audience that I was working with kind of in the moment on the story. 
part of what for me is just really essential about uh, any kind of performance, whether I'm telling a story to a friend at a party, telling a story in front of an audience, giving a lecture in front of students, being able to kind of clock their reaction and see like, oh, this is making a connection. Oh, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. Oh, you're bored, right? Like I, I really need that like immediate feedback. And if I'm not getting it, I need a lot of time by myself to, to figure out how I want to present the story. I recorded and uploaded a lot of stories for that class that looking back, I see like we're technically fine, but I was falling back on a lot of tropes that I think can be valuable in, in stories. They can add drama, but they were not healthy for me mm -hmm. uh, until eventually teacher of the class, uh, Mike Daisy, who's one of the, the most prominent autobiographical theatrical storytellers. Uh, and if you've never heard of him, that just goes to show how small the the pool of that industry is. He eventually gave me feedback along the lines of like, your stories are all really like technically polished and you need to stop worrying about that. I think you need to start thinking about how every story that you turn in is about something that you hate about yourself. Oh, because, yeah. So to get back to your question, and I'm sorry that I've, I've strayed so no, far away from good. it. I think the proudest that I am of uh, a piece that I've created, um, I'm I'm not fully finished with the, the new draft of the show about my father and, and my former faith. But one of the things that I am most proud of that I've been doing with it is that I've been going through the, the material that I wrote in college and simplifying, streamlining it, cutting out all the digs at myself that I felt like I needed to make in my 20s and looking for moments where where I can explore what I was feeling and what I was thinking and why I have made the choices that I've made with, uh, again, not just compassion, but also just curiosity is one of the things that I've discovered both the hard way in my own life, but also learning from the example that I try to set for my students is that being too self-critical or veering into self-hatred is, is a way of closing off curiosity about yourself. The more that I push my own students to ask more and more questions about their lives and their pasts and their stories, the more at peace with their stories and themselves they feel. And I would be a bad teacher if I didn't incorporate my lessons into my own practice. Ah, being gentle with yourself. And other things my therapist has said to me. That's the title of my memoir. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, in, incredible. I like that answer. What media are you consuming uh, now that's like exciting or inspiring to you? This is going to be a little out of left field, but okay. I've gotten really into really into movies and specifically like really bad schlock cult movies okay yeah so it it started march of 2020 with quarantine and covid and i was i was stuck in my apartment with a, a deadly respiratory virus you know waging war outside and there was nothing to to do besides you know just binge media and it was the sort of situation where i was like oh i've, I've always been meaning to watch the wire i've always been meaning to to watch yeah all of Ingmar Bergman's movies in the Criterion Collection. And now I have like nothing but but time to fill with all of this content. But like, 
I, I don't have the attention span for all of this content. And I decided, okay, why not just watch Cats, the Tom Hooper CGI Cats, which had just uh, been in theaters. Uh, and I, I watched that and I was just like, man, like there, there's something really wonderful about turning off my brain uh, and allowing not just cheap thrills and like well-constructed popcorn cinema, but like actually like chaos, like a really bad movie <laughs> is, is just allowing chaos to reign in your world. Oh my God. Uh, so throughout that year, I I watched nothing but the really like canonically like so bad they're good movies like uh, Xanadu, which I've since come around on and think is an unironically good movie. It is Attack of the Killer Crabs from the 1950s, Killdozer, which is a movie about yes. a, a murderous bulldozer from the 70s. The the really oddly wonderful thing about that experience. I had always struggled with giving a movie or, you know, a, a really durational piece of art, like my entire unfocused attention. Mm. Um, and, uh, and the experience of kind of binging my way through stuff like cats involved realizing like, Oh, like I, I only get a certain amount of time with, yeah. uh, with the bad movie chaos that, that is cats. And I got to, I've got to give it every scrap of my attention. And eventually when I, when I got sick of a steady diet of just bad media and I kind of thought to myself like, okay, there are, there are really great movies and really great shows that, that I've always intended to watch before I die. Yeah. And that day is approaching ever, ever the more steadily. I was actually able to go back to movies that I really love because I am extremely pretentious uh, like you know, Citizen Kane, Jean Delmont, which is one of my favorite movies. It's three and a half hours long. It's about a Belgian housewife going about her chores. I was actually able to to sit with them and and find a lot of joy just in just in seeing the images that that whatever filmmaker is giving to me right now, whether they are images of transcendent beauty uh, or meticulously arranged mundanity, or in the case of something like Cats chaotic evil uh but you know don't look at your phone don't let your thoughts wander just sit with the the media that's in front of you that be here now yeah and since COVID has ended like you know i'm glad that i'm glad that theater and especially chicago theater is back even if in an extremely shrunken form uh from what it from what it has been but the the biggest cultural events of my week are going to the music box theater or the Siskel or, or whatever and watching the Wes Anderson marathon or killer clowns from outer space, which was the entirety of one of my weekends this past summer. That's incredible. I lived down the street from the music box. Um, when I started teaching at U Chicago and it was incredible. And mm -hmm. I loved seeing their little films. My husband is a huge fan. Adam is a huge fan of, um, of, uh, occult films. And have you mystery science theater this? I feel like there's a whole. Yeah. So, um, I'll occasionally 
uh, watch a, a really bad movie with Megan, my girlfriend, or with Cole, my roommate, uh, or some of my friends via Zoom or phone. Uh, I also occasionally write movie reviews, which sometimes get posted on a website called Alternate Ending. There, There's a lot of fun in just mocking really bad movies, but I find the most fun in in kind of digging in with curiosity about like why why was this made like this yeah what about you what was what, the choice what what was the choice no i just uh, sometimes i just ask or i'm like what was this choice what about you what it, what media have you been consuming recently uh so i'm a huge nerd and i started wheel of time in january of this year and i am on the final book book 14 and these are like seven eight hundred nine hundred page books and i'm at the end of the series and uh, robert jordan passed away before he had a chance to finish it so then brandon sanderson had to he asked brandon sanderson to come in and help uh, finish out his like life's work um and i was worried that like it wouldn't be the same but i am enjoying i've enjoyed every moment of this book series in a way that like you have to just be such a nerd to to love but i like to call it the npr of fantasy novels because like i know every single thing about every kingdom in the region and their governing systems and their like culture like i could i could tell you tales of these of these people so like i'm i really love world building so i haven't actually watched a lot of things in that segment i just have been like reading or listening to the audiobooks a wheel of time it's pretty mm-hmm. it's pretty great so yeah i'm gonna be uh one of the few nerds who fully finishes wheel of time because i did not i feel like a lot of people stop after like book four sometimes book like eight nope gonna go all the way through i i haven't read any of these stories but uh the, the there's something really thrilling about kind of the kind of like the high wire act quality to seeing like all the ways that the deck is stacked against something succeeding and then they pull it off anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, in, in my work with, with my students, right. All of them kind of have that feeling that the deck is stacked against them either because they don't think of themselves as storytellers mm-hmm. or like me, they think of themselves as, as storytellers and they're so invested in that that they can't abide the idea of their work not being perfect. So, so either way, right. The, it, it's a really wonderful feeling when, when they get to the end of working with me and they realize, Oh, like the, I wrote a story that I'm proud of. Yes. I wrote a story that I'm proud of and that I love. What would you tell your younger self about this industry? It could be arts or writing um but what would you tell young people or their caregivers uh, about their career aspirations in the arts do you have any advice the way that you judge yourself in your worth uh in your work is extremely different from the way that other people will and one of the best things that you can do both for yourself and for your work is to really dig into how other people process the world as best as you can don't just read and and hear their stories but 
uh, try to get to know their perspectives as best as you can. I think the other big thing would be you are always being a creative, right? The, the, the creativity that you put in the world isn't just limited to uh, the essay that you publish or the show you perform or whatever your medium is. The way that you interact with the people in your life is an expression of your creativity. Uh, the way that you that you think about the things you encounter in the world is a creative choice, whether you know it or not, because refusing to engage with it as a creative choice is making the choice to shut off your creativity. And I don't mean that necessarily in a hippy dippy trippy sort of way of like, you know, you're always being creative, but more you don't need to invest all of your worth as an artist or as a creative in this thing or, or that specific thing being well received or not you have the power and you have the responsibility to seek out as much joy and as much creativity and as much meaning making in whatever you encounter in just everyday life that's the sound bite ah amazing i have one more community question for you we would be remiss if we did not ask you on behalf of our students, what are the top three things that you tell someone who is beginning to work on their admissions essay? And if there are any other tricks of the trade that you might be willing to reveal here on the Living Arts podcast? Mm -hmm. So I'll preface this by saying uh, credit for, for all of these needs to go to Josh Harris, who has been uh, I've been collaborating with him on on the curriculum that we use to to teach since he hired me from day one, to the point where I'm not sure how much of this wording is mine and how much is his. If you are writing any story about your life, but especially if you are writing a personal statement for college applications, one, write something that you truly want to write. Find something from your life that that you really care about that you would have fun writing, even if it wasn't expected of you. Ideally, something that you really want to put down into words, but you feel really lost how to do that. If it's going to be a challenge, but a challenge you really want to solve and a challenge you're really invested in, that's how you get to a, a good story. Number two, you don't need to tell the whole entire story. In fact, you can't. A standard college essay personal statement has a word limit of 650 words, which might sound like a lot, but actually that's two pages double spaced. Whatever your topic is, you're not going to have space to say everything about it. Your job is to pick one small part of it that you can tell as best as you can. A really wonderful Chicago storyteller named uh, Arlie Malinowski puts it this way. Your piece isn't done when you've said everything you could possibly say about the topic. Your piece is done when you finish telling the story that you're trying to tell, which I, I think would lead me to number three. I might tack on more. Try to find the question that your story can answer. So if you are talking about a leadership position that you have in one of your clubs, in order to avoid it feeling like a resume dump, I did this, I did that, I am great. Think about the question that you can only answer by telling your story. What makes a good leader? Or how did you discover this quality of leadership? How did your view 
of whatever it is you're doing change when you became in charge? Whatever question, again, you would actually really like to be able to to answer, to put down into words. And it's okay if your your personal statement doesn't list every single impressive accomplishment. It's okay if your personal statement doesn't include every interesting thing that you could say about the topic. Your story is done when you've answered whatever the driving question of that story was. Great advice. Could I actually add a fourth? Yeah, please. Always. Um, yeah, just because uh, a lot of a lot of the students that I work with feel really torn between a lot of different uh, feedback, um, especially from very well-meaning parents or teachers or guidance counselors or whatever, saying like, you can't write about this because it's too cliche, or you shouldn't write that because it's too specific and weird. You shouldn't sound uh, like you're a teenager. You shouldn't sound like a robot, right? And all of these uh, conflicting pieces of advice. Outside readers can be extremely good at telling you when there is a problem in your work. They are not necessarily authoritative on how you're supposed to solve that problem. So as you are working on your story, A, don't show a second draft to someone hoping for, you know, harsh, brutally honest feedback, because it would be like taking a cake out of the oven after five minutes and giving it to a food critic and then setting yourself up for disappointment when they say, well, this cake isn't very good. But once you've kind of put in the, the time with yourself and with a collaborator who you trust, who's guiding you throughout the process and who knows not to expect magic the first or the second or even the third draft. Once you've got something that you feel really proud of and that you stand behind, listen to all of the the feedback that you receive. But as you are incorporating suggestions and, and changes from the outside perspectives that you get, try to make sure that it it's still your story and that it's still written in your voice. I actually am before I before I wrap up uh, this list of three that became four, going to to quote some advice from my my co-teacher Josh. It is not good to be a brick wall or a palm tree. You do not want to be a person who has every piece of criticism and, and advice uh, just smash against you and, and none of it changes you. But you also don't want to be the person that sways in the wind with every single conflicting piece of criticism that you receive. Brilliant. Good job, Josh. MC, I could talk to you all day and have many times and yep. i miss seeing you every day because there was a world where i got to see you every day and i'm so grateful that you could join us here and we'll have to have you back so that we can get you and josh and katie uh, we'll have a little reunion special that would be the the most wonderful explosion of chaos that, that i could possibly imagine it would absolutely be chaos and we'll have Claire be live on it. And then I'm going to moderate it, which is just me watching all of the chaos around <laughs> us. But MC, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We hope to speak to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. Living in the Arts is hosted by Laura Scales with original music and editing by Jason Duran produced by Claire Howe, and our podcast coordinator is Colin Shy. Living in the Arts is made possible in part by the MGM Resort Foundation and by donors like you. 
For more information about anything our guest mentioned, be sure to check out the show notes. To learn more and support Living in the Arts, please visit livingartsdetroit.org. Thank you so much for joining us and so much for listening. 